Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Warren Wiersbe said something that uh, I don't know that I really liked. <laughs> you ever read something and you kind of read it and you go, oh, really? Is that it? He said, prosperity is the blessing of the Old Testament, wrote Francis Bacon. Adversity is the blessing of the new. Ah, what? I mean, don't you kind of want it to be the other way around? And I, hey, Lord, I'm following you and all's good and I'm doing everything. And so you're going to prosper me and we're talking materialistically. Adversity is the blessing of the new. Paul did not allow adversity to keep him from serving God. That's a, that's a pretty challenging statement, isn't it? When adversity hits, and it will, all those who desire to walk godly in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. When adversity hits, how do we view it? How do we look at it? Do we thank God for it? Do we say praise the Lord and, and we trust God in us to strengthen us, to grow us, to lead us, to guide us? Or do we say, oh, no, that's not what I signed up for? How do we handle that? Because the truth is, in the midst of adversity, is when God begins to reveal himself through us. The question is, how are we doing in our relationship with the Lord first and foremost? And how is that being seen through our actions, our activities, through our lives? Paul had a lot of adversity. There's no question about it. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, he goes to Athens. He goes on to Corinth. He's been in Athens. He goes on to Corinth. And there's four things that we want to look at this morning. First of all, there's a timely provision. Secondly, there's a passionate testimony. Thirdly, there's a providential salvation. And lastly, there's divine protection. Divine protection. I love this last part. It's a beautiful encouragement, I think, to all believers that God is with us. And we need not fear, even in the midst of adversity. Look at verse 1. Timely provision. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for, by trade, they were tent makers. Paul leaves Athens. He's given one of the most tremendous messages at Mars Hill. He shares Christ. He's in the midst of all that's going on. Some receive Christ is their personal savior. Many do not. He moves on and he goes to Corinth. Corinth was a city of about 200,000 people. Back in that day, it was absolutely an essential trade city. It was just a conglomeration of all kinds of people from all over the known world. The proconsul actually lived there. It was one of the central cities for Rome. So the seat for the proconsul, we'll see him later on in Acts, lived there. It was interesting because Corinth is known throughout the Roman Empire as actually a wicked city. Paul wrote Romans. He wrote the book of Romans, the letter to the Roman believers from Corinth. And if you read chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, you'll get a picture of what Corinth was like. 
It was a wicked place. Sin of every sort. Easily available. There was probably a large number of Jewish people living there due to the command uh, for them to leave Rome. So Paul comes into this. It's a huge trade city. It's very central. The opportunity to share Christ and share the gospel in the middle of this city to all these different people. You had Jewish individuals. You had God-fearers, Gentiles in the midst of this. You had pagans, the pagan of the pagans in the midst of this. Paul comes into this and desires to preach the gospel, and he's alone. Remember, Silas and Timothy weren't with him yet. He had left under duress, gone to Athens. They hadn't caught up to him yet. He goes on to Corinth. They still hadn't caught up to him yet. And what we find is that the Lord places Aquila and Priscilla with him. I think it's a beautiful picture. Aquila and Priscilla are from Pontus. Pontus is on the Black Sea. It's present northern Turkey. If you want to think of a map and you think of northern Turkey right on the Black Sea, that's where they would have been from. They had been in Rome. They had been kicked out because of the decree by Claudius, the Roman emperor. It's interesting to me that way back in Acts, when we talked about Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and those who were gathered in the upper room, and they began to speak in the known languages of that day, they began to speak in those tongues. In Acts chapter 2, verse 9, we're given a picture of all the different people from all over that had come, the Jewish people that had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Pontus and Asia are listed in that group. So they clearly had individuals that had heard of Christ, they knew Christ, they had been saved, they had seen the beginning of the church at Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, upon those who were in the upper room. They had gone back to Pontus and evidently Priscilla and Aquila had been saved in the midst of that and had gone on to Rome and now find themselves in Corinth alongside of Paul. They were of Jewish nationality even though they had Uh, Greek names, they were tent makers by trade and they worked alongside of Paul as Timothy and Silas were not yet with them. It says something interesting here. It says they were found. He found them. The word found has the idea of happened upon. But from a spiritual perspective, it's used in a much deeper way than that. It's used in the sense that God is the one who orchestrated this. And Paul, in the midst of following God, happened, quote unquote, to be in the right place at the right time, just as Priscilla and Aquila were in the right place at the right time. And God orchestrated them coming together. I think that's essential. You know, as we follow the Lord and as we walk with God, God has all kinds of people that just happen to come into our path. In this case, it's believers who are an encouragement to the apostle. He's by himself. By the way, it's interesting, tent maker very well could have been the idea of a maker of prayer shawls. A maker of prayer shawls. I used to think of those big old camel hair tents, and maybe that's the case. Maybe Paul could have gone to work for Kelty or REI or whatever. I don't know. But I have a feeling, perhaps, that it had the idea of a prayer shawl. And they came alongside. They made that for the the Jewish community. And they were skilled at it. It's how they made a living. It's interesting to me in verse 4, 
As we see God orchestrating uh, these individuals coming together and there's this timely provision of friends when Paul is at a point where he needs individuals around him, where he's alone, that in verse 4 he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul continues to do what he's called to do. We've seen this pattern over and over. He would go to the synagogue first. He would begin to reason with the Jews that were there as well as the God-fearing Gentiles. The word reason means to dialogue with. It's an interesting word because it has the idea of, of question and answer. But with an intelligent perspective, ultimately a godly perspective. We're not just talking about the weather and whether or not the weather and how it takes place and whether it's good. We're talking about the things of God. He's dialoguing with them. Clearly from the pattern, the dialogue is all about the Old Testament and that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And that salvation is in him alone. In the midst of this, as he's at the synagogue, Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia. You know, the thing that hit me over and over again this week as I was kind of studying this, reading through this, praying through this, is here you have Paul who had been persecuted, who had been pursued, who had to leave under duress in order to get to where he is now, and he's on his own. And God brings along Priscilla and Aquila to come alongside of him, to encourage him, to help strengthen him, to be a support to him. And in the midst of that, as he's at the synagogue doing what God has called him to do, the Lord makes sure that Timothy and Silas arrive as well. And what does Paul do with that? He begins to devote himself completely to the word. He begins to solemnly testify to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Paul is called to do something as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, very specific. He's called to declare that Jesus is the Christ. He's called to testify about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But don't miss this. God puts a team around him to help him do it. You know, one of the things I love about the body of Christ is I, I think of team. I think a team. I think a teamwork. When I was growing up, one of my favorite statements, because I hated getting jobs, you know, chores, hated it. I really did, especially when I was by myself. Because then there was that, oh, I can't believe I got to do this moment. Now, I know y'all, moms, you know your kids do this too, right? So, you know, give me a break. But the point is, is when my brother would join me or my dad would do it with me, all of a sudden it became a team thing and it, and it was a little bit more fun. Things got done a little bit quicker and there was, there was kind of an energy and a synergy in the midst of it. When I think of the body of Christ, not everybody's a hand, not everybody's a foot, not everybody's a leg, not everybody's an arm. Nobody's the head. Christ is the head. But as a team, gifted in the way that we are, uniquely, spiritually, given the talents that we have that are yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ to be used in whatever way that he chooses, we begin to follow God in building up the body in love, but also making disciples. Bringing people to the cross, sharing with them Christ and the hope that we have, and then the people that come to the cross, teaching them to observe all that the Lord commanded. I think a team, not everybody's a teacher. Not everybody's going to work in the nursery. 
Some of you absolutely should not help with children's ministry. God bless you. (laughs) Eric just fainted. I don't know where he's at. (laughs) Right? Not everybody's in the choir. Not everybody's on the praise team. Not everybody's going to drive that cart. And all those who have ridden in the cart say amen. Right? We, We have all kinds of diversity in the body of Christ. But understand something. All of us have a role. All of us have a place. When the preaching of the word of God takes place, when the apostle Paul begins to proclaim Christ, God puts a team around him, not only to encourage and strengthen him, to to make sure that his needs are met, to make sure that he doesn't have to continue to do the tent-making aspect of it, but that he can literally focus in solely on the proclamation and the preaching of the word of God because that is the most essential thing. The word of God is what changes things, changes people's lives team. The word devoting is an interesting word. It literally means to hold fast to, to to press upon. He was utterly focused in on the preaching. He was completely absorbed in the preaching or the teaching, the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, that he is our hope. He's doing this in the synagogue. He's doing this with both Jews who had a background of the Old Testament as well as God-fearers who had come into this, proselytes who had come into this and had begun to learn of the Old Testament, learn of Jehovah as we sang earlier. And it says that he solemnly was testifying. means he was witnessing intensely, earnestly, passionately. It's in the present tense. It means all the time. There wasn't a break If you were around the Apostle Paul, he was single-minded and focused on one thing, and that was presenting Christ. He wanted to make sure that everybody he came in contact with had the opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, not all of us are called to be apostles. He's got a unique uh, calling. I would suggest in the context of what an apostle is and the position and the title of it, none of us are called to be what Paul was. But we are all called to make disciples. We are all called to testify. We're all called with the ministry of reconciliation. So that no matter where we are, no matter who we're with, whether it's at the restaurant, whether it's at work, maybe it's in your own family, maybe it's your next door neighbor, that there is a constant communicating with God about, Lord, here I am. I'm a vessel through which your life is being revealed. Use me in whatever way you choose. Are we devoted to the Lord in that way? Are we solemnly testifying about what God is able to do, what he has done in each and every one of our lives? And no matter who we come in contact with, as we prayerfully consider what God is leading us to say, to do, we're open and available to him, to be used by him. Verse 6 says, When they resisted and blasphemed, He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. The word resisted is an interesting picture. It has the idea of an army setting itself up in opposition. (laughs) 
here they are. They, they're listening to the gospel. They're listening to what Paul has to say. He's obviously using the Old Testament in order to establish these facts. This isn't just a personality trait. This isn't just his own personal experience. Clearly those things are involved. He's using the Old Testament to verify. According to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. In the midst of that, they set themselves up like an army to resist him. They blaspheme. The word blasphemy literally means to say foolish things about God. We don't know what those are. We just know that the heart behind it was they were not receiving the word of God. They were not receiving the message of the gospel of God's grace. And Paul says something to them. I think it's interesting. Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. What he's saying is you've made the decision not to listen. I'm clean. I've done my part. I've shared with you the gospel. I've shared with you God's word. It's your decision to resist. It's your decision not to receive what God has said. You know, folks, everybody has a decision to make. Everybody has an opportunity to respond to Christ. Because I believe that God is working in every individual's heart in order to win them to himself because he desires for all to be saved. The question is, as believers, are we resisting? Do we set ourselves up against what the word of God has to say? Do do we somehow begin to push aside what the word of God has to say? We've got to be careful about that. Because we have a decision to make as well. Are we going to walk deeper with Christ? Are we going to follow him more? Are we going to yield our lives even further to him? Or have we gotten so comfortable that we just like where we're at? And so anybody coming in with the word of God that says anything contrary to what we think or what we've experienced or whatever it may be, we resist. As the people of God, we ought to always be growing. We ought to always be malleable in God's hands in order that we would be Whatever he chooses for us to become as we yield to him. Because God's always doing that work. Well, he goes on in verse 7. He says, then he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. This is providential salvation. God is at work. God is working through the apostle. And this guy's home is right next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. God, God does a tremendous work here. I, I, I don't know. I got a funny sense of humor. This is pretty uh, interesting to me. Paul is talking to those at the synagogue, and they don't want to listen. They're resisting. They're blaspheming. And he says, fine. Blood's on your own heads. I'm clean. I'm out of here. And they kind of sigh a bit as he walks out the door. And he goes 10 steps down and takes a right-hand turn to go right into the house next to the synagogue. It reminds me, have you ever, now I know I say this, I like chick flicks. I'm sorry. I got to confess, some chick flicks. Some of them, Princess Diaries, I ain't going there. But I do like You've Got Mail. Now, I say that because there's a particular part in here that this kind of cracked me up. Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, how many of you have seen? Yeah, thank you. Come on, give me a break. And if you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's great. There's a couple parts in it. Cover your ears. It's all right. Good. Move on and uh, enjoy the movie. It's funny. Tom Hanks is hilarious. Meg Ryan's hilarious. It's a sweet moment. 
There's one particular point where he gets set up in a blind date. He's been emailing and he says, should we meet? And he doesn't know who it is that he's going to meet. So he sends up his friend to look into the restaurant and they look in the restaurant and it's this lady that's been at war with Tom because of the businesses they own. You, you, you follow me? You tracking with me? <laughs> so Tom doesn't want anything to do with her. Even though this is the lady that he kind of has said, oh, if I don't marry her, I'm a stupid idiot. I'm a fool. I'm ridiculous. You know, if she's even halfway good looking, you know, I'd, I'd be a fool not to marry this lady. So he walks away. And the next scene is him coming back. She's still sitting at the table. He's deeply late. There's a rose to reflect. He's got, she's got a book. And he walks in and she's horrified. She doesn't know that this is the email guy. She's horrified because they've had a bad experience with their businesses. The bookstores. The shop around the corner, right? The little bookstore around the corner. I do like this movie. I could talk about this for a while. (laughs) He walks in and he sits down and she's even more horrified. Good grief. Not only did he come into the restaurant, I'm supposed to be meeting my significant other, but now I'm at the table with this guy and Tom knows what's going on and he starts talking to her. And so finally... Uh, She says, please just leave. Please just leave me alone. Please just go. And he goes, all right, all right. He picks up his jacket and he goes to the table right behind her. (laughs) And she's like, what? (laughs) Paul goes right next door. I mean, you think these people are like, oh, great, he's leaving. And all of a sudden they're watching and they're like, oh my God goodness, can we never get rid of this guy? The interesting thing is that Crispus gets saved. The head of the synagogue. And what happens? Not only Crispus, but his whole household believe. They're publicly baptized in order to indicate what God has done in them. Many of the Corinthians begin to look at what's going on and they too believe. Awakening is taking place. All around. Now, in the midst of that, what's been the pattern? What's happened to Paul? What's happened to Paul? When this begins to take place and when not only Jews are coming to know Christ and being publicly baptized, but also Gentiles are coming to know Christ and being publicly baptized, and the whole vernacular, the whole language of it is, is that they are one body, that they are equal in Christ. As Peter said, that they are saved in the same way we also are. See, the Jews didn't like that because they liked looking down on the Gentiles. For Paul as a rabbi trained under Gamaliel to be saying to them, they're equal to us. In Christ, there's one new man. What happened in every city that he's been in? Persecution has taken place. All of a sudden, the Jews would bring false charges, drag Paul before whatever leadership was there. He was beaten. He was thrown into jail. He had to flee for his life. All of those things, I'm sure, are running through Paul's mind because he sees that God is working. He sees that God is moving. He sees that people are being saved. He recognizes that the Gentiles as well are being saved. The pattern here is clear. The next step in the midst of all of this is persecution. The Lord knew that. 
And I think verses 9 through 11 are precious. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer. Isn't that sweet? Here's the great apostle who's made an impact on the world in ways that we're only, when we get to heaven, going to be able to fully understand. And guess what? He's scared. Do you get scared? Do you get worried? Do you begin to anticipate things because of past patterns that cause you to get distracted, get your eyes off the Lord, get your eyes onto the circumstances, and all of a sudden in the midst of that, you need the word of the Lord. You need Christ in you. You need the Holy Spirit to use the word of God in order to encourage you and strengthen you. Here, it's very clear as an apostle, the Lord comes to him in the night through a vision and says, don't be afraid any longer. Fear not. But go on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you. Isn't that what all of us want? Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what I want? Isn't that what we want? We just want to know we're following God. We just want to know that we're in his will. We just want to make sure, Lord, I just want to make sure that I'm not being presumptuous, but I'm not staying behind either. My friends put it this way. We're, we're, we're not in the Lamborghini, but I'm not in the Yugo. I'm right with you, Lord. I'm not getting ahead of you. I'm not falling behind. I want to walk by faith, but I don't want to be presumptuous in it. I don't want to assume things that aren't true. I want to walk with you. And in the midst of this, the Lord has to come alongside the great apostle and encourage him and strengthen him. And he tells him, you don't need to fear. Why? Because I am with you. (laughs) Divine protection. He tells him, go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, the Lord doesn't say you're not going to have challenges. The Lord doesn't tell him that there's not going to be issues that come up. We see that uh, throughout this, the rest of this chapter. But what he says to him specifically is, no one's going to harm you. Do you know how many times Paul had been beaten already? Can you imagine the psychological pressure, the emotional fear in him as a human being about going through some of those things again? And the Lord comes along and says, I'm with you. No one will harm you. I have many people in this city. Keep on doing what I've called you to do. Keep on trusting me. And Paul does for another year and a half. When you're afraid, what do you do? Because I'm going to tell you something. There's not one person in this place that truly, sincerely uh, is doing everything they can to follow Christ that doesn't deal with fear. Amen? Some of us have experiences from the past where it causes us to fear a little bit. We, We get the little twinge. Oh, this reminds me of. This feels like. Lord, am I, am I going to go through this again? Lord, would you help me? Would you strengthen me in this? What do you do when you fear? 
What do you do when you get worried? How do you handle that? Let me just give you a a few things on this. There's so many. So many. I would suggest the first thing to do is to be honest with the Lord. (laughs) Sometimes we're, we're so foolish, aren't we, in our flesh? We honestly think that the Lord doesn't know these things. We, we think somehow that we can hide from God as if he doesn't know the, the reality of what's going on uh, inwardly. He, it's somehow that the turmoil that we're in, the doubts, the fears, the concerns, whatever, even the anger, that he doesn't know that. I would suggest to you that the Lord desires truth in the innermost being. Truth in the innermost being. And what does that mean? It means that we're absolutely wholeheartedly honest with God. And we can come before him and we can tell him how we really feel. We can tell him what we're fearful of. We can tell him what we're concerned about. We can be honest with him about our worries concerning our own selves and our ability in the midst of things, whatever it may be. We can tell him. Be honest with the Lord. Is there anything that is hidden from God? Is there any thought that we will ever have that God doesn't already know it? Is there any activity that we ever participate in that somehow catches God by surprise? Be honest with the Lord. See, I think we live in a society that absolutely abhors honesty, hates integrity. We would way rather have things thrown under the carpet and covered up. And it translates into our relationship with Christ. No question about it. We don't want to hear all the problems because if we hear the problems, we got to do something about it. God wants us to be honest with him. He can handle it. He already knows about it. The question is, are we willing to acknowledge that? Secondly, I would suggest not only are we to be honest, but that we make a decision to place ourselves in a position where we are yielded to Christ and we're willing and ready to listen to him. And that means get into the word of God. Get into the word of God. Go to the word. Meditate on his truth. Listen to this passage. If you're fearful today, maybe you're struggling with something, you're worried about something, go to this passage. Tremendous. Look at Isaiah chapter 41, verses 10 and following. Isaiah 41, 10 and following. But yes, that's the Old Testament. I know many of you have iPads and phones and digital stuff, but turn there, turn there. Isaiah 41, 10 and following. Do not fear, for I am with you. I love this next phrase. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. Why? For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear. I will help you. Wow. Amen? Amen. Think about that. I am with you. I will hold your right hand up. I will sustain you. 
Can you imagine the Apostle Paul in the midst of the context of where he's at, having gone through the experiences, having the Lord come alongside of him in a vision, saying to him, Paul, remember something. I've called you this. I'll give you the grace to walk through it. I'll give you the strength to walk through it. I'll give you the words to say when you need to say it. I'm your protector. I'm your shield. No one's going to harm you. Man, can you imagine when he woke up? Whoosh! Superman came out, buddy. He was back at the synagogue. He was ready to go, right? Because he was reminded of something. And for the next year and a half, he pours himself into the teaching and the preaching, the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? We're transparent with God. We're honest with him. We get into the word of God and we meditate on the word of God. We're reminded that he's our shield. He's our defender. He's the one that holds up our right hand. That when we're following him, who can be against us? But the other thing I would say is remember how much God loves you. Remember how much God loves you. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. No matter what we face, no matter what we go through, no matter what it may be, is there anything that can separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus? Where does Christ live? He lives in us. He's our source. He's our strength. He's everything. Is there anything that can separate us from him? The Apostle Paul, who's been through all these difficulties, all these challenges says there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. Go to the Lord. Be transparent. Get into the word. Meditate on what God has said and be reminded of who he is, who he's declared us to be, his children, how much he loves us. And have an eternal perspective on the difficulties that we face day to day. Are you there? Are you going through something challenging? You fearful of something? You worried about something? Have you taken it to the Lord with thanksgiving? Have you gone to the word and allowed the word of God to comfort you through the inspiration, the revelation of the Holy Spirit in your life in order that you would grow in Christ, in order that you're able to face whatever circumstance, whatever challenge that God has allowed in your life with boldness because you know God is with me, Emmanuel, and there's nothing that can separate me from him. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.